Uh, good morning. So glad that you're with us today, whether you're here in person or streaming with us online. And uh, we just want to continue to encourage you to, to meet with your groups. The Fellowship of the Saints is um, complementary to, I almost said as important as, but we'll just say complementary to the teaching of the word. Those things go hand in hand. So uh, we just encourage you, whether you're here and you're going to meet underneath afterwards uh, or streaming, that you would continue in fellowship with your groups. That's such a sweet part of how this is set up and the community that this helps build. Um, let me pray. Actually, let's read the word of God first, our passage, and then let's pray over it, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Our passage today is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. The familiar passage says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Lord Jesus, we've heard your words before. Perhaps maybe this is the first time that we've heard this, or maybe you just focused on it. The conclusion to your sermon you gave at the beginning of your ministry. Would you cause it to sink deep in us and then go out wide through us? Give us ears to hear this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this parable uh, is actually the conclusion to Jesus' first full-length sermon. And some people argue his only truly full-length sermon I think it's interesting if you look at Jesus's teachings, well, he preaches a lot shorter than we do because I think he's able to say a whole lot and a whole little, and it takes us, well, we might say a whole little and a whole lot, but this sermon takes up three chapters at the beginning of the book of Matthew and in the gospel of Luke, and it's probably the most well-known and most famous teaching, exhaustive comprehensive teaching that Jesus gave. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And our passage really just begs this question. Are you listening to the sermon? And then you would say, well, how do I know if I'm listening to the sermon? Because the thing that both builders have in common from the outset is that they both hear the same thing. So it's an interesting enterprise to be a teacher or a preacher because this is a reality that you experience every time you stand up here to teach or preach something. Every person is going to hear the exact same thing. How can you discern who's listening? And this parable is really not that tricky. It's those who do what the sermon said. It's hearing with obedience. 
The proper response to Jesus' sermon is that you listen and you obey. Now, let me quickly say this. We, we believe that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. If you are in the root, you will bear fruit. Because when Jesus saves someone, he doesn't just throw out seed that then is not an amen to you. What happens is he comes and he dwells and he lives inside of you by the presence of his spirit. And his spirit is not dormant or asleep. It's alive. And the spirit bears fruit in you for the kingdom of God. And so it's not a contradiction of words. It's not an oxymoron when we say that faith alone saves you, but faith that saves is never alone. Those things go hand in hand. And so Jesus, as he's concluding his sermon, uh, he has been describing this entire three chapters, what life is like when it's lived under God's rule and under God's reign. Okay? And he often juxtaposes two ways of doing life by describing two different types of persons. This happens, too, in the parable of the soils. Uh, this happens in, in most of the parables. There's a this way and there's a that way. Okay? And so at this conclusion, you're going to see that there's, a, there's two gates, two roads. There's a wide road and there's what? There's a narrow road. There's, there's two trees. There's one that bears good fruit and there's one that bears bad fruit. And now we have two builders. One who builds on the rock and one who builds on the sand. And so before we get to the application of that, because it's really not that complicated, I want us to go back to the beginning of his sermon. I've sometimes thought, you know what I've never heard anyone do? Just preach the Sermon on the Mount. It's already a sermon. Just preach the Sermon on the Mount. And so in, in a really uh, shortened way, I want us to kind of work through it and then arrive at this conclusion so that we can understand why Jesus seems to be so simple and so direct. Okay, let's go to the introduction. If you have a Bible, you can look there. It's in Matthew 5. If not, I'm going to kind of walk us through it. Here's what's fascinating. Jesus starts with attitudes, doesn't he? Not actions. He starts with being over doing. Because the primary aim of his kingdom is the transformation of the human heart and the human mind. That's the kingdom that he first wants to conquer. And so when he comes into this world, and in Matthew's gospel at the beginning, it starts talking about the outcry of his ministry, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. And repent at its very basic form is the changing of the heart or mind. And so no wonder then that his sermon's going to start with the attitudes of the kingdom. We are human beings, not human doings. And so he starts with the heart. And there's a series of attitudes that need to be the controlling center of the heart and the mind of the person who is a part of the kingdom of God. You might call them foundational beliefs upon which all outward actions will 
come from. Okay, and these attitudes, these ways of thinking and being, honestly, brothers, they are countercultural and they are so upside down. And this wasn't just true of the ancient Near Eastern culture, it's true for us today. I mean, listen to this. Does he say, Blessed are the rich? Don't we see it that way? But he says, Blessed are the poor, especially the poor in spirit. Does he say, Blessed are the comfortable? He doesn't say that. But we see it that way so often, don't we? What he says is, Blessed are those who mourn, those who grieve. Does he say, Blessed are the powerful? No, what he says is, Blessed are the meek. The meekness is restraining power. It's not the absence of it. It's restraining it. Does he say, blessed are the independent, the self-sufficient, the, the autonomous, those who are a moral law unto themselves? He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness according to God's law. A derived righteousness. Does he say, blessed are those who get what they deserve? And he said, no, blessed are the merciful who, who actually offer to others pardon that they don't deserve. And then he says, blessed are the pure. In our, in our day, purity is almost seen as a restrictor of human freedom and human expression. But not in the kingdom of God. And then he says, perhaps what's the most difficult one of all, and that's blessed are those who are persecuted. Not those who are approved or accepted by men, but those who are rejected and scoffed by men because of righteousness sake. Doesn't that sound upside down? It, it is upside down. So I, I hope you're nodding your head inside, even if you can't do it early this morning. Yet Jesus says these attitudes, these attitudes, they're, they're foundational to the Christian life, to living in God's kingdom. And though our passage today is really the conclusion of this sermon, we have to start at this introduction because Jesus is promoting an upside down kingdom, a way of life that none of us would choose naturally. Poor instead of rich, grieving instead of comforted, meek instead of powerful, hungering for God's ways and surrendering our rights to self-sufficiency, purity of heart and body instead of self-gratification, persecution instead of approval and worldly acceptance. I, I could stop here, not even, even discuss our passage, and send you downstairs to your groups and ask, are those your attitudes? honest assessment. Is that your, your way of thinking? Because it will become your way of living if it is your way of being. And this is just the introduction. But the kingdom of God didn't come as anyone thought it would. The fullness of deity in human flesh born to an engaged teenage girl out of official wedlock to a man who bears no significant name and is from a town no one wants to be from. 
and that's the front door. And so the Sermon on the Mount sets us up for this, okay? And what it says then is that God's kingdom is coming in such an upside down way that it's also gonna be lived out in an upside down way. And it's no surprise then that we might have to get turned upside down too. And so Jesus goes on in his sermon to describe for two chapters how these foundational kingdom attitudes start to affect kingdom ethics, the way you live your life. And he juxtaposes, just like I mentioned earlier, that you have heard it said this way, but now I tell you this way. And it seems like maybe he's completely abolishing the old, but we know from Jesus' own mouth in this sermon that's not what he's doing. He's going to talk about how these kingdom ethics, this new way of life, is not an abolishing of the law of the Torah. It's fulfilling it. To use maybe a little more friendly language, expanding and renovating it. Like a building project, it's going to strip you down to your foundation. It's going to call into question your heart and your mind and your life. It's the perfect sermon. A building project stripped to its foundation. So it's no mistake then that we arrive at the end of chapter 7 where Jesus' sermon concludes. And we have a parable about two builders and two foundations. And what it really is representing is two basic ways to respond to the message of the kingdom. It's calling into question if you're listening, and it's calling into question if you're responding. I'm going to read it again. And I'm going to insert the Lucan account, insert some language uh, that is not contradictory to, but supplemental to Matthew's language on this exact passage. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who dug deep and built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. One builder, the wise, digs deep, and builds a foundation on the rock. One builder, foolish, does not dig deep and builds his house not on the rock, but upon the sand. They encounter the same storms of life. The language is used exact, exactly the same to, to say righteous or unrighteous, obedient or disobedient. The same storms are coming for you. but only one will stand. And it's him who built his house upon the rock. This feels like a slow pitch softball toss, doesn't it? It's not that complicated. The kingdom is magnificent in its breadth and its reach. It's multifaceted, sometimes even a little bit confusing. But this ethic, this call to obedience is very simple. And he's saying you have to start with the right foundation and you have to build upon it. 
So in very Wichita Fallsian language, I'm going to summarize it this way. You got to dig deep and you got to build up. Okay, dig deep is self-inspection. This is something no one really wants to do. But when you read that passage, it talks about the wise builder is one who digs deep and then lays a foundation. Okay, and this is the, the part of the process that every builder doesn't really want to do. If you dig deep, what are you going to find there? Brothers, if you, if you dig deep in your life, what are you going to find there? I'd rather stay on the shallow sand. But wisdom beckons us to dig deep. No wise builder would lay a surface foundation of sand, would they? No wise builder, no one you would ever hire to build your house, would you do so if you knew that that was their plan? And yet spiritually, this is what we do all the time because we don't want to dig deep. Because digging deep means this. It means you have to examine your vulnerabilities. You have to actually face your insecurities. And a lot of times we, we use things like um, our professions and religion as capes, as cover-ups for our insecurities. And so achievement and success can very much become the foundation which our lives are built upon. And it's such a tenuous exercise because no matter how much we achieve or how much we succeed professionally, there's always cracks. There's always fear of a storm that might come. It's not solid. It's not rock. It's not true foundation. And some of us do that religiously. We would never say self-righteousness, but our insecurity is in that area. And so we promote ourselves as a very outwardly righteous person. And our perceived righteousness to ourselves is actually the foundation that we're standing upon. And in the quiet moments of our hearts and minds, sometimes it comes this way. You make your first big mistake. If you're a married man, it doesn't take long. If you're a father to children, maybe even shorter. But unless that righteousness, as Jesus tells us in this sermon, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into inherit the kingdom of God. Some people say the scariest phrase in this sermon is depart from me. I never knew you right before this conclusion. I personally, someone who struggles with self-righteousness, think what I just said is the scariest part. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, those who covered up their insecurities with religious obedience to the Torah, to the law. Bren, you have to far exceed those if you want to enter the kingdom. Good works won't work because they're not that good. 
There's a crack in that foundation, right? And so we have to dig deep. We have to identify these false securities because we so quickly secure ourselves to insecure things. Let me for a second go back to the, the attitudes. I think it's always helpful to go back to being when you think about your doing and see that it's not quite working out like you thought. So let me put it this way. We, we don't really want to be poor in spirit. We want to admire someone who's poor in spirit, but we often don't want to be the person who's poor in spirit. We want to exude confidence of having it together. And I know because we work tirelessly to keep that persona for others. We don't want to be those who mourn our actual spiritual state. We would rather talk about how secure our foundation is than talk about the cracks that might be in it. Okay? We want to be seen as powerful and influential, not meek and humble. I've never met a man who talked about all the power that he was restraining from using. But I myself and many men I know are jockeying power plays for position and influence. Uh, we want to be approved by men, not exposed to them. I'll dig deep, just let me do it alone. We don't want to be exposed to men, and we certainly don't want to be persecuted by them. And sadly, I know this is true because our faith is real until it costs us something. Money, position, employment, sometimes a relationship. We can just revisit these kingdom attitudes from Jesus' introduction, and we'll find that we are not quite so kingdom-minded after all, and we have to dig deep to get there. And I think what I've found uh, in my time in pastoral ministry is the longer we have spent building our own kingdom and laying our own foundation, the more stubborn we become about it. And you know what it requires to save our life? The winds have to blow. The floods have to come. And what we feel in the moment is that God's being mean to us. But you know what, brothers? It's really a severe mercy. He is stripping away all the false securities to expose the foundation upon which those things were built to save your life. Very unwanted, rarely asked for, but he never wastes a storm on his child. Uh, last week, my son Davis said, Dad, let's build a fort. My response was, no. At least internally, I was grumpy and tired, but I was compliant. So I said, okay, buddy, let's build a fort. We went out to the back, and of course, you can gather everything known to man to build a fort. I'm sure some of you have done this with your sons or grandsons at some point. Uh, and we got out there, and we started building. 
He did not want to listen. He did not want to receive instruction. He's a little bit stubborn like his mom. I'm just kidding. Those watching online, my wife is wonderful. I'm the stubborn one like his dad. And it was fascinating because he wanted to build a fort like the tower of Babel Dad, I want it to be big. I want it to be tall. I want it to be grand. And what did he do? He immediately started building up the walls and it got taller and it got bigger. And he was so proud of his little kingdom. He was building. It got past me and he said, it's taller than you. It's taller than you. And he just kept going and going and going. And I kept stopping and finding myself doing what I didn't like that my dad did to me offering unsolicited advice. You got to build a foundation, Davis. He was not interested in the boring work of building a foundation. That was of no interest to him. And so he finished his mammoth creation of a fort and you know what happened? And I thought this was so appropriate that it was last week that this happened for me. Gust of wind blew it over, dashed to pieces. He's furious. He's mad. He's wanting to throw a temper tantrum. We've got to do it again. And you know what he did? Built it the same darn way all over again. No foundation. But this time it lasted longer. We went to bed and the fort remained and he couldn't wait till his friends could come over and say, check out that fort. It's amazing. The next morning we woke up and guess what? Gust of wind blew it over. He's young, but that's what we do spiritually all the time. We labor diligently to build a kingdom that we think is fantastic and we want others to think is fantastic too, but we don't dig deep to examine the foundation upon which we are living our lives. And it may take a while for the wind to come, but brothers, listen to me. Jesus' sermons telling us it's going to come. You better secure your foundation well because the storm is coming. And when it comes, it will expose whether you are someone who listens and obeys or whether you are someone who listens and does not obey. The former is wise, the latter is a fool. Lay a solid foundation. We have to stop doing the same things over and over and over again while expecting a different result. It doesn't work that way. There's only one sure foundation. And you may know it, but I'm going to let Scripture describe it to you. There's one solid rock. Okay, but I'm going to scoot back like Jesus does so often in his sermon. And we're going to borrow from something ancient and old, the words of Moses and David and the prophets before we move forward to something new in the words of Peter and Paul. So just listen to this. If the first thing you need to do is dig deep, the next thing you need to do is to build up on the rock. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Those were the words of Moses, the words of David. I love you. O Lord, my strength, the Lord is my rock 
and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And then the words of the prophets. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Then the words of Paul, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is now building upon it. Let each one of you take care how you build for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then the words of Peter, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice that in all these scriptures, from Moses to David to the prophets, to Paul to Peter, they, of course, are character, characteristically describing a rock. It's strong. It's certain. It's secure. It's a place of rest and refuge and hope. It's a place of rescue. All those things are true, but they don't describe God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a rock. They call him the rock. He's the only secure rock for your footing. He's called the cornerstone because he's the first one laid upon which the rest of us are built. And the beauty of the gospel is when we'll dig deep and we'll see our own failures, our own cracks. He takes us and says, be built upon me. Chosen and precious. I'm your foundation, but I'm also the cornerstone, the one who will guide you as you should be built up into me. A wise builder will choose that cornerstone. And this isn't a preacher's way of trying to sell you Jesus. I'm telling you, brothers, when the wind blows, and the floods come, there is nothing in the kingdom of this world that will keep you strong, steady, and secure. You have to turn your heart and mind the way you think upside down and secure yourself to the only truly secure thing. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to end here so you can talk to each other. 
If I could sing, I would sing an old Baptist hymn for you. We have any former Baptists turned Presbyterians in the room? Yeah, it's actually quite a few hands. I didn't raise mine, but that, that's me too. Uh, and there's a, there's a hymn. Maybe I'll just close by reading the words of it. You'll know it. My hope is built on nothing less, do you know it? Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In every rough and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, thank you that when all is stripped away from us, you remain faithful, steady, true, our rock. And you have hewn and laid for us a precious cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through faith, we're built on him. And through obedience, you are creating a magnificent structure, a fort beyond all forts. And we give you thanks for the grace to let us be part of it. And we thank you for the grace that helps us walk in light of your kingdom. I pray for these men that you would help them to be part of that kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.